Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. So my name's Claire Skinner. I'm an emergency physician. I work at Hornsby Keringai Hospital in the north of Sydney. Um, and I have some college roles. I'm really interested in hospital culture. I'm interested in the way we organise our workforce in hospitals. And I'm really interested in just making the health system better for everybody. You're, you're the director of emergency medicine at Hornsby. Um, you're also uh, you've been a curriculum advisor for uh, the Sydney Medical School, but you started off an arts degree. Uh, you've done some journalism, and you're even a budding jazz musician. Um, what was the impetus behind such a radical pivot to emergency medicine? Um, so, Cliff, I'm the sort of person that's actually interested in everything. I've always found it really hard to limit my options. Um, and I have to admit, I didn't get the marks to get into medicine straight out of high school. I had, I probably, I'd like to think I probably could have if I'd tried, but I had different priorities. I was very into my music. I travelled overseas and played the saxophone in year 11, which I think takes a chunk of preparation time out of your HSC. And um, medicine wasn't really on my agenda so much then. I just thought it was out of reach. And I think the other thing is when you're just a kid from the local high school, you don't really have people around you who are doing things like going to medical school. So I decided to go to uni and keep my options open. I'm interested in everything. So I did an arts degree and I did a science degree and I could have done them seven times over because I love all of those subjects. And um, I got interested in health because... I just think it's a way it's a way of viewing the world. I'm, I'm really interested in politics. I'm interested in equity. And health seemed to be a way of approaching that. I did an honours degree in history. And in my, my honours thesis focused on the prohibition of narcotics in the wake of World War I. So that was a big health topic. And my supervisor for that was a historian of the Spanish influenza, actually. So I got interested in that. And I thought I wanted to write. I like playing music. I like writing. So it's just a matter of how do I combine all of these. Um, after I left uni, I got a traineeship on a major newspaper. And I, my aim was to write about health and science and be a science communicator, I think, as someone who'd done both. And then I was working on the news desk the night that the Threadbow landslide happened. And I just remember, I remember feeling completely inept, like just useless, going like, here I am ringing up people, waking them up, asking them about this. It's really intrusive. And I'd rather be doing something where I can actually help people rather than just being a commentator. I was sick of being a spectator and I wanted to get into it. So I applied for medicine and I was lucky I got in. So that was the start of a whole new journey. Oh my God. <laughs> You've given me so, I don't know where to start, but I, I am going to start with uh, emergency care. Yeah, sure. What, what, you, you got into medicine and you were obviously, you know, um, working as an intern for some time. And then what made emer you kind of, what made you decide to come into emergency care? What, what was it that? Well, I think again, I, so just to acknowledge this, my cousin, my, my, again, a distant cousin's wife is Jo Metcalf, who at that stage was a triage nurse at Canberra Hospital. And Jo used to visit us in the school holidays and tell us wonderful stories about the emergency department. Um, so I'd had that my whole life. And she doesn't, she she shrugs this off, but she's a major influence in my career choice. 
And then when I, um, the whole way through med school, actually, I was intending to have a career in public health or academia. And I was, my interest was drug and alcohol and probably psychiatry. And then I hit internship and I really liked everything. I did have the advantage when I did my ED term, which I did in winter of my intern year, that because I was at Canberra Hospital, I knew Jo and I knew all of her friends. And it was, it was sort of the environment where I felt most at home. I, you know, I, I think people, there's a number of reasons why you choose a specialty, but I think the sense that you're among your own people probably is a really strong one. And that was a definite thing I had in the ED. I felt, like I sort of felt family, like I was with family. And that department was a really, really good close-knit department. We socialised together. There were some really good people there. Despite the fact that I haven't worked there since the early 2000s, I'm still in touch with a lot of people from Canberra ED. And I think that really helped. And then there were actually a few things that turned me away from ED as an intern. Like I didn't like the idea of being a lifelong shift worker. And also ED is really intimidating when you look at it from the outset. You have to know, I think you almost have to know 90% of every other specialty to be a successful ED person. And it seemed really attractive at that stage. I remember thinking, you know, you're respiratory and you need to know your way around the lungs well and a little bit of the heart. Um, and it was really attractive to go off and do something else. So I actually didn't initially specialise in ED. I actually initially embarked on physician training with a view to getting involved in infectious diseases. And again, that was probably, I had a strong mentor figure in Professor Frank Bowden, who was the professor of medicine at the ANU, who's still a lovely friend and mentor. And um, the notion that you weren't truly expert in ED. And I think because I had a lot of physician role models, I didn't see that actually in ED you are an expert. You're just not an expert in the same way that a physician might be around the body system that they specialise in. So I actually went off and did physician training, which I didn't really enjoy. And when that all fell apart on me, I came back into ED. And again, with ED, it was about the camaraderie, I think. And I, and I, I think as well, just the acceptance that I am an all-rounder. No, does that, does that make sense? It, it makes like, perfect think... sense to me. I have a very similar experience. I was scared to death of emergency, uh, of the emergency department because I started out working in wards. I was on an orthopedic ward and at a very young yeah. age I became a nurse unit manager and uh, something happened where I decided, all right, I need to start looking around. So I started doing some agency work and they offered me a shift at the Austin emergency department yeah. Yeah, and wow. I – just got so I got so intimidated and I always thought of the emergency department as this big scary place and then I worked there for a bit and then they invited me to come and join them and work with them for good and it it was very similar it was about the team and it was about the the way in which all of the different craft groups or, or care groups yeah, that's, do it. Isn't like that they just, that's really true. Yeah. So for me, that's that's the other thing as well. Like I think um, I've always been a little bit uncomfortable with the hierarchy of the wards, that there's sort of Sir, Professor Sir and the nurses and I didn't really – that didn't really wash well with me. I'm quite an egalitarian person, so I found the flat hierarchy of the ED and the multidisciplinary nature of the team really attractive. Like I like that doctors and nurses and ward clerks and cleaners and the allied health team all work together in ED. Look, to an extent, I haven't experienced on the ward. Absolutely. The, the, uh, I've seen an emergency consultant, a FASM, get the mop, mop and bu bucket out when – 
there was water on the floor and it's like... You'd see me do that on every exactly. shift. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I make beds, I, I do bedpans. I don't know that it's the most efficient use of my time, but I think it's really <laughs> connecting and I think I, that's what you do. You just, you're flexible and you do whatever needs to be done. Yeah, it's that it's that teamwork that definitely drew me to, to emergency care and I just never looked back and it sounds like nor did you. Yeah, well, it was really interesting because I came back to, I had a, I had a, year off. I, I left clinical medicine for a year and and played in academia and I started picking up some ED locum shifts during that time. And I remember just thinking, wow, this is so good. And I loved learning the medicine. And I'd never, I'm the sort of person that chose medicine because I like people, not because I, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that get really excited about pathology or a procedure. And that's not me. I like people and their stories. I'm really in it for the narrative. But I found this rich connection to the human condition in ED that I hadn't found in other places. I love meeting new people. I love the challenge of being able to talk to a, a stranger about intimate things very quickly and forming a relationship. So it really suited me. I really loved it from the start. Um, it, it, it's kind of it's kind, we've kind of moved into one of the questions I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I was, uh, you know, preparing for this. I was reading one of your many online compositions. You write lots of essays and lots of commentary on um, the emergency care world and the world, you know, at large. Um, but one of them on life in the fast lane, uh, which makes it really clear to me that. The, the quality of interpersonal and interprofessional relationships are super important to you. Um, and this explains a lot of your interest, I think, if uh, hopefully I got this right, in the ED workplace culture. Um, I've got a really strong research interest in ED workplace culture and uh, patient safety safety culture um, and interventions that can improve the climate of safety for staff and patients, um, what it is it about culture that interests you? And if any, where do you think the gaps are? So I think culture is almost everything. So um, it's really interesting, as you, I'm sure you know, that I've got a strong interest in patient safety tools and techniques as well. And you would have found some of my writings and talks about that stuff. But for me, absolutely, the, if you want to run a safe emergency department, Absolutely, the main thing you need is psychological safety. You need a culture where it's okay to go to someone and say, I don't know, or I stuffed up, or can you come and help me? And I think you can have all the checklists and all the incident reports and all the investigations in the world, but if you don't have that culture where it's okay to own up to what you don't know and it's okay to ask for help, then safety's not going to happen. Um, so for me, culture is really important, but it's also, culture is also why you want to come to work each day. So you know, I've worked in 17 emergency departments, I think, in, during my career. And there are some where you get there and you really don't want to let your colleagues down and you really feel you want to do a good job and you really feel that there's a culture of excellence and support around you. And there are others that don't feel quite that way. But it's really hard to actually pinpoint what the factors are that make a place feel good and what a place, you know, what, what's lacking in the other places. And it can, change on, it can change in a second as well. It can just be a critical person in leadership or a critical event that happens and wasn't managed well. It's really, it's, all, it's almost ephemeral, but it makes a very big difference to the way emergency medicine feels and the quality of the care you provide, I think. Yeah, and, and you mentioned leadership. And I, I have certainly seen where good, solid um, 
leadership in an emergency department can make an enormous difference. And it does, but it, it is really hard to describe what it is. <laughs> but you can actually measure it. So I've done a study recently where we measured the um, climate of safety. You can kind of take the temperature um, of the yeah. place and then you can work at um, different uh, interventions that can, can help you improve it. Um, which kind of leads me into the next little bit. How, how yeah. do you think, you know, you'd like to see if there, if you do see gaps in, in the culture within a department, how do you think you'd like to see these being addressed? Um, I think a lot of it is around leadership development and training. And I think part of the – so for me, every single person in a senior nursing or medical role in the emergency department is a leader whether they like it or not. And I think part of the issue is some people don't – conceive of it that way. So leadership in an emergency department is not just the director and the nurse manager, it's actually the whole stream of people. And the other thing is, you know, junior doctors and junior nurses, they can be leaders as well, because we all, leadership is, it's a matrix, it's not just a hierarchical thing. Um, I think as well, what I see quite often happening is people decide they're going to get into a leadership role, and they sort of believe there's a checklist or a toolkit for how to do that. And for me, absolutely, the most important thing in leadership is actually being a genuine human being. So showing vulnerability, being a, your real self. I, I get asked quite a lot of times, you know, what makes a good leader in the hospital? And I actually think it's around, it's actually quite simple. It's actually just treating people how you'd wish to be treated yourself and actually just telling the truth, like trusting people with the truth, I think is something that doesn't happen quite often enough. And it, there's a balance to that. Like you don't want to be so truthful that you make people frightened. But I think um, if you're so risk averse that you never tell anyone what's actually going on and you hold the truth too close, that can be a bit of a recipe for problems. Yeah, and you quite often see, don't you, good leaders um, are judicious but also reasonably open with their vulnerabilities about not knowing. I think. Well, that's yeah. That's what I think. I don't. I don't know. Like I, you know, I'm. It's a big journey for all of us, isn't it? Like no one's perfect. Like exactly. Just got to. This is a constant work in progress for me. And leadership also. Um, you're quite right. It's not just a checklist or a competency that you get signed off, and then all of a sudden you're a leader. You see elements of leadership within each interaction in a shift. So you, you know, you. I'm, I'm sure it's very similar in Hornsby, but you'll have. Um, a, maybe a team of three nurses caring for one particular area or group of cubicles and yeah. leadership just kind of comes throughout that shift and then it will, you know, at the end of it, they can all just back off. And uh, it, it sometimes actually it's just about having the uh, – the ability to make a decision, and sometimes the decisions are wrong, but just having somebody to make that decision can, you know, is is some of the elements of, of leadership. I think I actually think a lot of it is just about connection and creating the sense that things will be okay, even if deep inside you you don't think they will. So it is a fine balance. Uh, look, if you don't mind, well, I'm going to move on to um, a, a pretty uh, big. Um, area that you described online. So on croaky.org, you wrote a wish list yeah. of 11 areas yeah. where um, there's a fair bit of daylight between an ideal emergency yes. care system and that which we've kind of currently got, right? Um, do you think you could tell the listeners a little bit about your wish list? Um, yeah, I have to remember the wish list. <laughs> you don't, obviously, yeah. I wrote that a while ago, <laughs> although it's surprisingly relevant in the pandemic era. 
Um, I think there's a whole bunch of, you know, I think we all hop on treadmills and we all get acculturated to stuff and we don't stop and think about how we could do it differently. And also change can feel too difficult and too hard. And the wish list I wrote was a bit of a mix of stuff I think we should change with ED practice and protocol and a bit of stuff I think the health system could do around us. So I think a lot of the stress and strain we're feeling in emergency departments is actually not much to do with the way the emergency departments run, but actually to do with the system around us. And I very much worry about inequity. Um, uh, you know, I, I, it's to, to me, it's no surprise that the Black Lives Matter movement has sprung out of COVID because COVID has blown the inequity in our system wide open. And I, I worry about access to healthcare. I worry about the big gap between private and public. I worry about funding mechanisms for healthcare, which are actually at odds with what's good for patients and communities and real people. So if you're funding someone to do a certain thing and then, you, and then you're trying to actually do a change management program where you ask them to do something different, that just doesn't line up. And I don't think we think about our governance and finance structures enough and the influence they have on the way we work. And I, you know, simple things like the triage system. So the triage system we've been working on is there, but it doesn't actually reflect the way we all work. Like in real life, what difference is there materially between a Cat 4 and a Cat 5? I just think it bears re-examination. And I think the other thing is we work in a system where junior doctors and junior nurses are the first people you meet and you don't meet the senior decision makers until later in your pathway. And they're actually sometimes quite removed from direct patient care. But I know for me, if my, one of my family members is unwell, I'd really like a senior input into that decision quite early. So I think we probably need to flip the way we do it, which will, it's, it's challenging because it's money and it's time and it's hard to change. But I think we need to start reimagining the health system for what's best for patients and not just what's convenient for clinicians or what's just the way we've always done things and too hard to change. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, we, and we've done lots of different um, – we've tried lots of different things over the years, you know, in – Certainly in my experience, we've tried having um, a consultant at triage where we make decisions together. Um, you know, that, that we did that for quite a long time and I've done it in a few different emergency departments to um, uh, different, um, different levels my, of success. My, uh, yeah. my first specialist job was to be the consultant at triage. Yeah, actually. right. I remember years and years ago they did a study in the UK where they had they actually had clerical staff doing triage and it it showed that there was no real huge difference in the outcomes for the patient. Um, well, that's another. That's, so I've seen studies where um, they get the triage nurse to predict disposition of the patient from triage and they're just about always right. So there's so much stuff we do in emergency medicine that is actually just historical and doesn't value add to the patient. But we're stuck in our professional silos and we're very risk averse. And um, I, I just think we need to reimagine it. Uh, yeah, look, and I think, you know, the pressure that's on triage nurses, like it's great to see that we're getting different roles for nurses in the waiting room, you know, they're called all sorts of different things, waiting room nurses or triage support nurses where, you know, because I, I certainly have had so many experiences pretty much every time you work at triage, especially on an afternoon shift where you've got a queue of people and you've got a huge waiting room full of all of these undifferentiated people. And it's it used to scare the hell out of me until we started. Oh, I think the ED waiting room is the scariest part of the hospital. Um, and definitely, you know, me as a registrar coming on to night shift, the first thing I did was do a little ward round of the waiting room because, you know, there are often huge numbers of people there. 
Um, I think we're getting better at it. Like I, we, we run waiting room on the inside at my hospital. We've worked out how to bring people in, but it's still a very intense model and we're not quite resourced to do it the way we'd like. Yeah, and we, we've, we've, I think we're starting to get there with the idea of holding uh, cubicle beds um, just in case something comes in and because it kind of makes sense, right? So why why have a bed waiting for who is it you're waiting for if not the people who are sitting in your waiting room? We've got we we call that pull to your full at Hornsby. Yeah, okay. pull to your full. That's good. I like that. Because uh, also you know the inefficiency of waiting room medicine. Like where I'm on my knees, seeing examining someone in the waiting room, and then there's a bed empty inside the ED. And even if the perception is they don't need the bed, at least put them put them there for the 15 minutes so I can do it properly. Like the indignity of what we do, I think that's the whole thing in ED is the indignity of what we do. We haven't questioned it. We get used to it. But if you think about that from the patient end, what are we doing? Like, let's just be kind. Let's just do things properly the way we'd like to be treated if it was us or our family on the patient side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we could actually talk about the waiting room alone for a very long time, but it is really encouraging to see all of the different things that all of the different emergency departments around Australasia have been trying over the last few years, like different models of care and different ways of managing, you know, how you get... um, your hands on a patient in a dignified way. I, I, I've seen a pretty dignified in, in, in an increase in dignity, certainly. Because yes, um, yeah. we used to see people in the waiting room and, you know, it, sometimes I used to think, oh, my God, imagine sitting next to um, a complete stranger and revealing some of the things we're asking you um, in, in that waiting room. It, yeah, and I think that's probably actually been good for me as a parent. I think, you know, I've, I haven't had required emergency departments much for myself over my life but when you have small children you actually do find you need them and it's very very eye-opening to be on the other side particularly when you go to a hospital where you're not known like I you know most of the hospitals in Sydney people would know roughly who I am but occasionally I go and I get a anonymous experience and it is quite eye-opening. Yeah it sure is and 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 that's what I often come back to especially when my kids were small um, is it's an eye-opener about just how difficult it is to manage oh sorry to navigate such a um, monolithic thing such as the public health sector Um, and it really brings it back to a lot of my postgrads when they get to the triage stage I would say just make sure that when a patient is trying to find their way around that you don't just register them and sit them in the waiting room the the buck stops with you a little bit in trying to find the best pathway for for them to make their day that slightly little bit less arduous and lengthy you know don't just send people off and it, it the buck really does stop with us at the at the front door yeah it does doesn't it i think that i think you just have to go into it with the mindset of what would i want if i was on the other side absolutely and that's the simplest way to look at it and the other thing I worry about as well, though, is, you know, the moral injury of taking a whole bunch of people who are, I, I think most people who choose emergency to work in ED are quite human focused. Like I, You've got to like people or you wouldn't choose that specialty. And then forcing them to deal with queues and crowded waiting rooms and having to say no um, can drum the compassion out of them. And I do worry about the effect of that. I don't think anyone chooses to be unkind in their work. I just think it's unfortunately a learnt response. I was reading an, an article that you wrote um, about a colleague that really influenced uh, the way in which 
you practice medicine. Um, uh, I think he was the med reg at the time, and then uh, later on, you you actually had to care for him. Um, he feels it feels like he was quite a big influence on how you uh, you conducted yourself in, in emergency care from there on in. There's lots of and you talk to any emergency uh, care worker and they've always got a few people or an incident or a shift or, a, you know, a time that um, influence the way they practice. You know, perhaps you could tell us about that situation or that, that time. Yeah, I've written a couple of stories about that. I, I wrote and I, I did a talk a couple of times. I got asked to do a talk at Recess on the Harbour a few years ago and to talk about a time where I'd had a negative interaction. And I learned a lot from that because I, I chose to tell a story of a, a shift I'd done. I'd done a rural locum shift several you know, several hours away from town and I'd, a big trauma had happened and I'd felt quite left alone. And I described the interaction with the um, retrieval team on that event. And I have to admit, I chose to tell a story a bit about me and the retrieval team because I felt that they were members of my tribe. I wasn't trying to be tribal. But I learned from that that it's very hard to tell a story of a negative interaction because it will always hurt somebody. So since then, I've actually very much focused in my writing and my talks about telling stories of positive interactions. Um, so I've, I've written a story about, I, I, you know, a couple of people, I, I described a, an interaction with a surgical registrar literally on day two of my internship where he did me a favour and helped me out with something that very much wasn't his job. And it was like a light bulb moment for me of just going, I have to remember this day for the rest of my career. And it's now it's now a long time ago that day. But I have to remember that when someone asks me for help, they're not trying to be difficult and they're not trying to be a pain in the bum. It's actually because they need help. And it's, it's so much easier just to give them help than it is to give them a hard time about it. And also then hopefully I instill in them the notion that this is what we do in health, that if someone asks you for help, you just give them some help. You don't give them a hard time. And it can be and, something you know, so small. And it, 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 that's, that's incredible role modelling. And it was really interesting writing that story about my interaction with the surgical registrar. And then subsequently we had it the other way around, you know, where I looked after one of his patients in the middle of the night um, more than 10 years later. And, you know, he, we, he didn't remember that. He didn't remember this, mm. that he'd helped me out with a cannula on day two of internship, <laughs> but I firmly remembered yeah. it. But it actually caused he and I to be in touch again after, like, and, that's, you know, that story is now, you know, that the the interaction was 10 years after, and then there's another 10 years that have gone since that. But just talking about the role of kindness and where that fits in our professional cultures. And it's actually not something that's particularly valued. Like, so when you turn up and go for a job, no one actually reflects on how kind you've been or how collaborative you've been. They actually look at your papers and they look at your operating rates and they look at how much money you'll bring into the practice and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I just think somehow we need to build the kindness and empathy back into what we value in the way we recruit. Oh, look, uh, um, and how do you do that? I, I, I've, you know, I, I made a conscious decision to do it in my team. Like I, you know, I just rate. The, it's the way you ask the questions yeah. on a panel, even. Yeah. Like you can ask about, you know, you can have a scenario of here's someone who needs help. Well, this happens. How do you react to it? And hire for niceness because I actually feel that people's values are something that it's harder to change. You know, their technical skill. Gosh, I can work on that. You know, their knowledge, I can work on that. But their values, I really want to make sure they're pretty aligned. And I don't want everybody the same. Like, I, I think you need diversity in your team. But I want people who their tendency is to be someone who will help out and pull with the team. 
over above any other thing I can have on their CV or in their experience list. Yeah, right. Um, and the, the, those small little things. That I had a, I had a patient when I was a, a junior burger nurse um, at the Austin Emergency Department, and um, it was my first. I think it was one of my first patients that was a ventilated patient in the resus cubicle who was that had heaps of troubles. Like they were difficult to 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 ventilate. Um, and it was a very simple. It was a very simple thing, but I didn't. I didn't spot it, and I was left for probably about ten minutes while I was waiting for my preceptor. So a guy called Chris Hawkins, uh, who works yeah. in Brisbane. I mean, sorry, in on the Gold Coast. Um, uh, as an ENP now, but at the time he was my preceptor for teaching me how to ventilate and do all, do all of the, the stuff in the emergency department. And he came in and he spotted the problem straight away. Basically, where you put the uh, uh, the Ventolin MDI was on the wrong side of the filter. Really, oh, yeah. okay. really simple. I've made that. I think we've all we've made, all that, made mistake. that mistake. But the the difference that he made was as he arrived, he spotted it, gave them some Ventolin, you know, obviously changed where the MDI um, was and gave them some salbutamol and the the patient obviously just, you know, picked up quite well after that. And at the exact same time, um, the the doctors and all of the team started to come in to review the patients and he he did something very simple. All he said was um, Cliff and I spotted this and now he seems to improve, be improving. Yeah. And I yeah, didn't. Share, I didn't. Share the learning experience. Share the moment. Avoid shame. Like uh, I didn't spot it. So good. <laughs> I didn't spot it at all. I felt terrible. Um, but you've remembered oh it forever, haven't you? Oh, my God. I'll never forget that. So how good was that? Yeah. Hey, perhaps we can talk a little bit about, look, It's. I think it's quite self-evident that um, you uh, have a vested interest in well-being. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that aspect of your world? Um, I don't know. I might be in a glass house throwing stones here just a little (laughs) bit because I have to admit work-life balance is not my strength. Um, I have to admit I'm not so into – people do well-being in different ways. I'm not a yoga person. I'm not a mindfulness person. I, my take on well-being is really all around relationships and civility. And um, I think something we can all do is improve our relationships in the workplace. So actively work on making friends with people and being in, connected to people and talking to people. Um, well-being is really important to me. Like I, you know, I've worked in departments where I just didn't want to be there and didn't feel connected and it yep. felt horrible and I didn't provide good patient care in those departments. And I know in the in the departments where I feel like I belong and where I'm working with people who trust and support me, the patient care I provide is just so much better because I'm more confident and relaxed in my practice. Um, so in terms of well-being, I, I really try to do it psychologically for my team. Like I try to be someone they can talk to. I, we try and, you know, be the sort of team where you can ring anyone up at two o'clock in the morning and say, I really need to go through this with you. No questions asked, no judgment, no shame. Um, And I really stress civility in my workplace, which is interact with people positively, be kind, view things through the lens of empathy. So if someone's behaviour doesn't make sense to you, don't be quick to judge and assume they're a bad person. Judge the behaviour, don't judge the person. And intervene in a way which is designed to provide support. You've probably heard the expression, don't be a dick. And I really don't like that when it gets applied to my writing. I, I write a lot about civility and culture in hospitals and people say, this is easy, don't be a dick. But it's actually not don't be a dick. It's actually 
more active than that. It's actually you have to actually find the positive. So I, for me, a lot of well-being is around culture and relationships. And then I'm also really lucky because I have a whole bunch of artistic pursuits, which are where I get my well-being from. So I, you know, I think my piano is my major source of well-being and the music I'm playing is a really good way to emotionally process stuff. All right, you you so, um, you you've, you've you've brought it up. <laughs> so yeah, and so we get, I, we I, I don't know. I'm lucky, and my and my writing's like that too. Like everyone says, why do you write? I can't believe that you write. And it's actually, well, you know, it's stuff that sits there, and it's my way of processing it and putting it. I can sort of make my own narrative instead of something that happened to me. It's something that I'm talking about and something I'm making. I'm actively choosing to make part of my story, which feels more positive. Yeah, and certainly your writing is is very much a conversational tone. It's it's really quite intimate when you read any of Claire's it's deliberate. when you read any of Claire's uh, work, you feel like um, Claire's just talking to you, basically. Yeah, well, that's the way it is, and it's really deliberate because there's a whole bunch of my, I, you know, I I did some journalism training and I have an honours degree in history, so I've obviously had quite a lot of formal writing training which is all about where to put, you know, I, I, I can write a proper sentence. I know all the formal rules of grammar and syntax. But in my own writing, I choose to just try and make it like you're having, you know, you're, you're just having a conversation with a friend. So I do awful things like put but at the start of a sentence and and at the start of a sentence and pauses and hyphens and things where they're not meant to go. But the idea is it reads like having a chat not like a formal piece of writing. Yeah, and uh, it's a funny thing. Uh, my PhD supervisor um, used to uh, just keep pulling out butts at the start of a sentence, when, especially when I was uh, describing qualitative um, uh, results and findings. So, but yeah, yeah, so please. But that's yeah. There's a there's a time in the place, Cliff. Like you know, like I, you know, my thesis didn't have many butts at the start of a sentence. That's fair but, enough, I reckon. But why? Why can't we? Why can't we write in our own voice? Why do we have to be so stilted and 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 staccato? When we're when we're delivering research results, why? That, I I don't know. Like I, I yeah. So that's the whole thing. Is I started off, you know, interested in a career in academia, and I found the standard way of writing a scientific paper actually quite boring, mm. and they're hard to read. Mm. Um, and my writing style doesn't suit that. So I actually went, you know, I actually made a deliberate decision that if I wanted to have, if I wanted to influence hospital culture and practice, I was better off writing conversational narrative style stories than I was trying to write lots of papers. Yeah, right. Uh, and mostly these days when I write for a journal, I write opinion pieces, which is terrible. I don't, I'm not arrogant enough to think my opinion's special, but I'm trying to – I'm all about engagement. I'm, You know, I often there's a whole bunch of stuff. Other people are doing the research, but I think the story is sometimes more important than the data. Yeah, I think you're right. And look, no, I, I actually get it. I've, you know, when I write for write a paper, I completely get why um, we need to write in that way. But sometimes I just wonder, I'm going to move away from that because I want to come back because you're trying yeah, sure. to escape me talking about one of your projects that you've been doing. I don't actually know how long. I became aware of ED Musos um, probably a few months ago now, and I was just blown away. Um, you've, you've got to tell us about ED Musos. Um, okay. So the ED Muso, it's new. Like I, I wouldn't feel too surprised by it. So it's a, it's basically just a pandemic thing. Um, and I probably like a lot of us, my piano is getting more of a workout 
during the pandemic than it has for millions of years. And I've loved the music going around. So I've loved all the lockdown choirs. And I remember seeing, you know, the family in New Zealand who were singing the lockdown boogie and that came on and it went, you know what, this is perfect for me. I love writing silly words. I love music. I'm pretty okay on a computer. This is, I know I have a lot of, you know, I went to a high school that had a strong performing arts stream. So I have a lot of friends in the performing arts and it was like, I can pull something like this off. Um, so, and also I, I, I'm really, I'm a really connected person. Like I, you know, I don't think any of us knew until we were in lockdown, just how much we rely on seeing people and touching people and being around people. So this was a way of being in touch with colleagues and doing something positive. And it was only ever intended to be a sort of wellbeing project. It was like, here you go, here's something fun you can do together. And Seriously, so the ED Musos went out. We performed a Billy Joel song. The reason we performed a Billy Joel song is just because, you know, anyone my age and stage who plays the piano grew up playing basically just Billy Joel and Elton John songs. So that's what I can play. And um, it was amazing. I thought I put it out. I stuck it out up on my Facebook and on my Twitter account and thought I might get 20 or 30 friends and it'll be fine and I can just do it myself on iMovie. And then in the end, we had 170 submissions for the Stay at Home State of Mind song, and it became a big. It's if it was a big production. It became a stay awake. I pulled a series of all nighters, and it. Um, anyway, it, it was a fantastic thing. Like I just think, um, here we are. Like I, I love, I love the diversity in it. I love that there's doctors and nurses, and there's a ward clerk. There's a lovely scene in our video where. The people in the middle of the screen are the president of the college and the ward clerk from Box Hill ED. I love that yeah, democracy yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. And no one, like the video guy working on it with me, I deliberately didn't tell him who was important or what anyone did. Like it was just like you put it together where it works. And, um, yeah, that was great. And I thought I was just doing one and then everyone said, this is so fun. Can we do another <laughs> one? And I was like, yeah, okay, I've got, I can do a few more of these. And also there's so many learnings once you've done one that you're okay. I am really mindful, though, that we're very privileged in Australia and New Zealand. Like We haven't yeah. had the pandemic that our colleagues overseas have had, so I was worried about hurting people. Yeah. So it was a very big deal that it was performed at home in your own time and at our own expense. Like I didn't ask college for money or yeah. seek external fundraising. I thought this is for us. Yeah. And I love, I love it. You know, we've got the bagpipe player, and everyone's with yes. their kids and their dogs and their teddies, and it's just a fantastic thing. So we're lining up to do another big one, hopefully, and I'm. I'm running a, a smaller one at the moment, which is Teha Ruha, which is a Māori um, waiata, um, just in collaboration with some colleagues from New Zealand, which is lovely. Yeah. And at the time of recording, the deadline, by the way, for all of those who are um, due to send it's, in their phone. It's, it's tonight, <laughs> but I always leave it. I always leave 48 hours up my sleeve for like... Yeah, so of course. Okay. No, I, um, I sent Claire... A couple of videos of myself singing. Oh dear. Yeah, it's really nice, but I, I'm the luckiest for all of these because I get to sit and watch all the videos come in, and it's just so nice. It's got to be so time-consuming. Um, yeah, it is, but it's really fun, and uh, I, yeah, it's it's good, and I think that's the whole thing is you just got to set it up so it it's fun for everybody, and you've got to remember that it's fun. It's not my work. And also the other thing is at the moment I have so many colleagues who come from the arts um, sector and they're really struggling, so I don't mind at the moment throwing a little bit of my money at them either. Like I'm really conscious that, you know, in those of us that work in emergency departments, we're as pandemic-proof as you get and others in our community are doing it much tougher, so it's nice to be able to support them a little bit too. Yeah, it's really easy to forget um, how people are going. You're quite right. My 
my family, my wife, myself, we, we've been fine. We can work from home. But um, I'm recording this with Claire um, in a very small village in um, northern Victoria. And um, the people around here are, are, are not um, as, as cushioned from this. They're, they're really struggling. Businesses are closing left, right and centre. Um, so it's... It, you really do get an eye, your eyes opened when you come out from inside your own little house and see how everybody's managing. Yeah, and everything, I'm, I'm very conscious that everything that ED musos do has to be done with an extreme degree of respect for those around us that aren't experiencing this the same way. It's great. We're going to put the a link, a few links in the show notes to so that people can get an idea of what the ED musos are doing. And I dare say... Most people will spot at least one person that they've they know or have come across in their emergency care journey over the last whatever however many years, um, and that that's going to. I'm so looking forward to the to the next ones, but also really mindful of how much work it is for you, and you know if it if it tails off, uh, you know tapers off. We we all completely understand. So it does come and go. Like I, I'm sure you realise there was an aborted one in the middle here. Like I did send one out about six or seven weeks ago, and I never got around to it. So that's just the way it works for all of us at the moment, I think. Yeah, and that was that was actually a beautiful song. Yeah, maybe next time yeah, we'll get absolutely. there. Absolutely, Claire. It has been such a an honour to. Uh, it's been awesome having a chat to you. Um, yeah, you too, we, Cliff. We, it's so nice to meet yeah, you. Yeah. So look, um, I think. It would be great to get you back on after I've become a little bit better at this podcasting business, but also, you know, in a time that's maybe non-COVID. Yeah, I don't know. I'm worried that's a little way off, Cliff. Anyway, yeah, I just same. think we have to all stay connected. And yeah. I really hope that um, pan- the pandemic will be a catalyst for some change in the way we do. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? We're going to get more, get more human, get more sustainable in particular. Um, just get more connected to our community through this. It's quite interesting how we see. I know I was finishing up there, but now that you've mentioned it, how resources and funding for different things that we've needed for quite a long time has been made available in different spots. For example, you know, there was an ICU at Casey Hospital that we were trying to open for you know, a good couple of years and then all of a sudden there was funding for it. It would really just be great to see that that continue. Yeah, it would. I'm I'm a little bit worried we're heading into lean times though, yeah. but I, yeah. I, I I have to be optimistic otherwise what what's the yeah, point? Exactly. So I choose to see this as a major opportunity and I want to be involved and engage with it. And I think that's a great way to finish off. Thanks so much for being on the show, Claire. Thank you for having me, Cliff. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and the Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message, or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast 
about your emergency life.